Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Well, first up, we're going to take a look at the stories that are making an impact on the front pages and the business pages of today's papers. Joining me here in studio this morning is author and journalist Emily Horrican and Kevin, ha- not Kevin, it's Kieran Hancock, even business editor with the Irish Times. You're both very welcome. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Kieran, I'm going to kick off with you if I can. Uh, Banking, the banking sector, mm. it's writ large really across all of the newspapers today. Were there particular stories or articles that stood out for you? Well, there's a couple of stories uh, this week. One is uh, around Italy and its uh, windfall tax, which the uh, right wing government there led by um, Giorgio Maloney um, had to backtrack on within 24 hours. So they uh, announced in a surprise move that they were going to introduce a, a one off windfall tax on the banks to try and capture some of the excessive or some of the large uh, profits that the banks have generated as a result of ECB rate increases. And the plan was to uh, use uh, some of that money to support uh, mortgage holders and uh, people who are struggling with their personal finances. But it went down like a bucket of sick. Uh, with the markets, the bank shares collapsed, not just in Italy, but across Europe. Uh, it impacted AIB and Bank of Ireland here as well. And um, they had to backtrack on it within 24 hours. So they've introduced a much lower levy. So it has reignited this debate, if you like, across Europe, but also in Ireland as to whether we should have some sort of a windfall tax on banks here. Now, the Irish banks, uh, the three of them recently reported in the past couple of weeks their first half uh, results. Which were extraordinary. They were extraordinary, yeah. Huge profits uh, being generated. And we had a piece in our own paper there um, about 10 days ago um, stating how they're actually making more money now off depositors than they are off the mortgage holders. And that's, you know, that's contrary to sort of traditional banking, the way banking uh, works and the way they generate their money. And the reason for that is because as interest rates have gone up, the amount that the banks are earning uh, by having holding our deposits with the uh, with the ECB, essentially with the Central Bank of Ireland, and they put a, a chunk of that money on deposit with the Central Bank of Ireland and the Central Bank of Ireland is paying them the official ECB rates. Meanwhile, um, to us as depositors in our on-demand accounts, they're paying us practically nothing. And even uh, in the accounts where they're offering a, a couple of percent, they're still making uh, a lot of profit. So it has become uh, hugely profitable for, for the Irish banks. Uh, and that has led to this call now for some sort of a windfall tax to try and capture some of that money and use it for people who are uh, struggling in the cost of living crisis. Yeah, and David McWilliams in your own paper making the point that they're at it again, you know, and mm. that this notion's building up that the, the banks are going back to their bad old ways. He's saying that um, Irish savers are being cheated by the banks uh, out, uh, out of about €120 million Euro each month. Emily, like... You know, it does feel a little bit like we're mm. back here again that, as Kieran mentioned, they're availing of all these huge uh, increases because of the money that they have on deposit. It's not being passed on to mortgage lenders. Do you feel that there's um, a, a head of steam building up about the negativity toward banks? or There might be that latent negativity still there well, for them. there's definitely that latent negativity. And obviously either of these pieces are a tough read for people who are on a monthly basis feeling massively the pinch of rising interest rates. Anyone who has a mortgage is feeling this and we're feeling it more and more. It just keeps happening. Every time you think that the rising interest rates are at an end, you get hit with another one. So to read in the context of your own life and your monthly budget and the sacrifices that everyone is making, to read that the banks are now making more money, their highest profit since 2007. Also, 
they're not paying tax on their corporate profits because they're still offsetting the losses from the banking crash, which is completely legitimate. But it does really, truly stick in everyone's grow. Um, and I think it's quite interesting that in Italy, it's the far right government who introduced the thing. Here, it's more the far left who are calling for a windfall tax. Um, I see people before profit TD Paul Murphy is demanding that the government impose a windfall tax, which I think is highly popular. People would love to see that happen. There are reasons why it shouldn't happen. There are reasons why it's maybe a better idea to stick with the banking levy, which we have possibly increase that rather than generating new legislation for a bunch of new taxes. Mm. Karen, bring you back in here. Leo Varadkar saying that they're kind of open to looking at something. Charlie Weston making the point that would something like a windfall tax do more harm than good? Do you have well, I suppose there's a couple of riders to this. One, we do have banking levy already in place. It's generating about 98 million euro a year for the government. It's under re review at the moment. It's out to uh, public consultation to see what people think about it. It's been in place for about a decade and it was designed to capture some of the, some of the profits, if you like, um, of the banks uh, as they sort of return to normality post uh, Ireland exiting the bailout and so forth. The other rider to it is be careful what you wish for in a sense because uh, Ulster Bank, uh, which is owned by NatWest in the UK and KBC, which is a Belgian uh, lender, both exited, uh, have effectively exited the Irish market this year. And so we only have three uh, high street banks, retail banks left in the market and they're three domestic banks, AIB, Bank of Ireland and Permanent TSB. Now, if you inf introduce a windfall tax, it's unlikely that an international player is going to look to come into the Irish market. Now, it might be unlikely anyway, mm. But I don't think uh, it's going to encourage any international players into the Irish market to provide some much needed competition. And competition is something we desperately need in the banking market going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And Charlie Weston making that point that it's just, you know, another nail in the coffin of attracting people here. I was talking to somebody last week from a financial institution who was set to set up here um, and just the regulatory environment put them off completely. So this could be the death yeah, sure. nail. Just one thing, I mean, Leo Verrecker, uh, you know, calling on the banks to do more uh, for depositors and, and so on. He's a bit of a cheek, really, because the NTMA operates uh, state savings on behalf of the government and the uh, rates that they're offering on their products are equally miserly. So, you know, the government really should should move itself before it starts lecturing uh, others. Yeah, you mentioned earlier the pressure that everybody's feeling and looking at this in the context of household bills and something's very difficult for people. Um, the mortgage interest relief as well is something that we're going to be talking about later on in the programme. Uh, Emily, do you see that um, the government are sort of um, alive or aware much more about those cost of living issues than they were, say, a year ago? Or do you think that they're doing enough? The upcoming budget will have a lot of money to spend. Are you getting a sense from them now as we head into it that they're going to take those? Yeah, the feeling is that they do actually, you know, finally realise that this is really happening. It's not just looming on the horizon. It's actually happening. It's actually impacting people. Obviously, it has an effect right across the economy. If your spending power is down, that impacts everything. So I do think and I hope that we will see like important proper measures in the budget. Um, I think that they realise that this is now the thing that without if they come out of the budget without making realistic changes, this will make them incredibly unpopular. Yeah, and that is not something that they want. No, lots of issues for the banks this week, but we'll move on now to talk about an issue that is affecting uh, everyone right across the country. A very interesting story on the front page again of the Irish Independent revealed 
big divide in Garda staff levels. This was a story by Michael McHale, who mm-hmm. has broken down uh, the figures, I suppose, of staffing Garda levels across the country. Uh, very interesting um, statistics there and further stories about this row that's ongoing between Drew Harris. Uh, Kieran, you might kick us off with what stood out for you here in relation to the Garda story. Well, it's it's been said that um, the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, is uh, is from Meath and that in Meath there's one Garda for every 703 people. If you compare that to Dublin, it's one Garda for every 392 or, you know, you can go around the country. I think Meath might possibly be the um, the, the highest figure in this uh, in this analysis. Um, so, you know, there's a bit of uh, finger pointing going on at uh, Helen McEntee for not doing more for Meath, but... Of course, it's not her responsibility as Justice Minister to allocate guards in the first place. That's down to the Garda Commissioner and the leadership uh, team in Angarda Shia But the other thing is, if even if it was, if Helen McEntee uh, was to direct the Garda Commissioner to move hundreds of guards uh, to Mead, I think uh, there, there would be finger pointing at her anyway. That's right. Um, she'd be in trouble if there she'd were... She'd be in, in trouble over that, yeah. I mean, one of the things that struck me is that if if you take the Dublin number, I said one Garda for every 392 people, and we know all of the sort of issues... Uh, in Dublin at the moment. And you look at Sligo Leitrim where there's uh, mm. one Garda for every 371 people. Um, it, it's quite striking because I'm sure that the, the Garda on duty in Dublin is dealing with a range of issues that are much, much different and probably much, much more uh, complex than what the Garda in Sligo uh, Leitrim is dealing with. But, you know, I, I don't know how um, the Garda management goes about allocating uh, resources around the country. And of course, as we know, the numbers uh, in Angarda Shiakana are reducing all the time and they're lower now than they were pre-pandemic. Yeah. And they just 750 fewer Garda now than, than there was then. They, the numbers definitely just don't stack up in terms of the recruitment. And when you look at that incident that happened with the American tourists, it kind of brought about uh, a new reality about what's happening around the country, which is no bad thing. But very interesting statistics, I suppose, and a worthwhile exercise in looking at who's representing represented where. Emily, you were looking at another story in relation to this, which was about what's going on at the top brass mm. level within Angarda Shiakana. Yes. So um, this is something that is happening. So there are three unions representing the different Gardaí um, and there are two representing the more senior officers. And then there is one, the GRA, the Garda Representative Association, which represents about 11,000 of the roughly 14,000 rank and file workforce. They have put a motion of no confidence in Drew Harris that's the to first their time members. That's, that's never happened before. That has never happened before. And it is worth pointing out that the two unions representing the more senior figures have not done this. They have not. It is not on their radar in any way, so they say. But this motion of no confidence has now been put to the 11,000 of the 14,000 rank and file guardy. It has no legal standing. So no matter what the vote is, it doesn't actually have an impact. But my God, would it be embarrassing? Yeah. I mean, it really would. Now, the Garda Commissioner has said that he is not going anywhere, regardless of the outcome of that. But this is still, I mean, you know, what an indicator of the trouble that is quite obviously within the force. There's a lot around the inability to retain and to recruit at the moment. So people are not joining the guards and there are people leaving and they can't get them to stay. It really is, you know, I mean, this headline story about the numbers of guardian in the different areas is just one aspect of, you know, what looks like a kind of slightly dysfunctional force at the mm, moment, mm. which translates into awful incidents, you know, that we see on the streets and then that really upsets people. The lack of visible presence is what everybody is talking about. Yeah, and that, that 
word you keep hearing about the guards is the morale, you know, yeah. in terms of trying yeah. to get people to even stay there and then try and attract new recruits is difficult. Kieran, you mentioned, you know, somebody based up in Sligo is not dealing with the same level of problems. They're not. Um, but somybody who's based in Dublin also has to contend with trying to find some place to live on a guard of salary. And yeah, of course, I think what, the, what this sort of highlights, what it signals is the low morale within the rank and file and the fact that there's a real frustration around working conditions. And that's something that's going to have to be dealt with, you know, whether it's Drew Harris or it's somebody else, it's, it's really going to have to be uh, dealt with in a meaningful way. Um, and particularly if you're going to recruit more guards, because there's no doubt that, you know, the world of work has changed uh, because of the pandemic and people are looking at a, a career uh, as a Garda and they're saying, well, you know, do I want to work in the middle of the night? Do I want to uh, work maybe every weekend or every second weekend? Um, do I want to be spat at or physically abused or verbally abused uh, in the course of my daily work life uh, and so forth? It's a really tough job. Yeah. And, you know, something's going to have to be done, I suppose, to... Um, to, to look at the, the working conditions of guards around the country yeah, and, and I'm not sure what the solution is, but it has to be. No, done. it's a self-fulfilling problem as well. The fewer guards there are, the more exposed and the less safe those who are on the ground feel and therefore the less likely people are to want to join. I mean, it's something that, you know, someone needs to get in there and affect like proper change yeah. really quite dynamically. One of the other uh, stories we were looking at today was this issue of uh, students who are facing, it's an annual story now, rent scams ahead of the new academic year. This is something that goes hand in hand with that problem we have right across the country about housing, Kieran. Uh, you've been looking at a story in the Indo today again about some of the ways and people have been targeted. Yeah, as I say, it's a bit of a hardy annual, this uh, story. Students, uh, the scramble for accommodation as the academic year approaches and rising rents, you know, they really have risen substantially in Ireland, certainly over the last uh, number of years. And there's a couple of examples given in this story. Uh, one person, uh, a 20 year old woman who transferred seven, nearly seven and a half thousand euro to a landlord in the Netherlands, never met them, um, never clapped eyes on the property. And a 30 year old man who signed a contract and made a payment for four thousand euro uh, for a property in Dublin Eight again, never met the landlord and never clapped eyes on the property. So I suppose there's a warning there that if you're going to, I mean, clearly the rents in Ireland are very high, so you're you're going to end up having to pay a, a large sum of money one way or the other. But you really should meet the landlord, preferably, or or the agent who's acting on behalf of the landlord, and you should inspect the property and just make yourself as secure as possible that um, the the rental agreement that you're entering into is is kosher. Um, in these cases, obviously, they were fraudulent. Yeah. And in some cases, I think um, the, these scammers are actually charging much lower sums. They're saying, you know, you need to give us a small deposit to secure your right to the property. Just reel them in. But they're, yeah, they're doing that to multiple people, so they're making a lot of money and then they just disappear. So people have to be on guard. Yeah, some good advice there from the National Economic Crime Bureau, but it does sound very uh, basic, like if it appears to be too good to be true, it it, it probably is. But that's OK. It, it just speaks to the desperation, though, I suppose, that lots of students yeah, totally. and their families are under. Emily, you were looking at a story in the Irish Daily Mail today about uh, Dublin funding. Um, uh, Dublin gets 1.1 million from Rural Fund. This is the capital allocation given to by Heather Humphreys, I think it is. Um, and again, looking at it, it's very interesting to see the split between rural and and urban investment, isn't it? Mm, well, I mean, anything that builds itself as a rural fund and then has given the largest proportion of funding, it's for developing remote working hubs. Um, the largest proportion goes to Dublin. Obviously, 
you know, there's a kind of an eye roll at that. Um, I suspect if you drill down into it, you would probably find that, you know, it isn't quite as bad as it sounds. I mean, you know, that's 1.1 million for our, for Dublin. Um, Galway and Kerry received over a million each. So, I mean, it's not, you know, the way it's not as extreme as it immediately Perceives to be, but then Longford, Leach, Leitrim, Offaly and Westmeath collectively yeah. only managed to get 1.4 million. Uh, so you do think that there's scope there to be developing rural hubs. You'd be forgiven for thinking that there's a, a, a series of elections coming up, Kieran, wouldn't you? you would, yeah. I mean, they might just need to change the name of the fund. They may need to change the name yeah, because, of the fund. Because, you know, the remote, it's perfectly uh, logical that you have remote working hubs in Dublin that, and that they and get that some it would be per capita. Of course. based more in Dublin, yeah. Of course, yeah. So I, I, I don't know, maybe they just need to, as Emily says, we need to drill down into it a bit more, but maybe they just need to change the name or the terms and conditions of the fund. Karen, one of the other stories that's been bouncing along um, all week is the Dublin Airport mm. Authority, Fingal County Council courtroom drama. Do you want to take us through what's happening there? Yeah, so what happened is in 2007, Fingal County Council gave planning permission to uh, the DEA to build a new runway, a new north runway at Dublin Airport. And this was to allow for the expansion of Dublin Airport uh, roll on to 2023. One of the conditions of that planning permission, I should say, was that there was a restriction on the number of uh, nighttime flights that could take place at the airport. So no more than an average of 65 uh, flights per day between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. Now, I was covering it at the time and I remember at the time there was quite a bit of consternation within the aviation sector about this because uh, you get a lot of, uh, uh, you know, early morning fly- flying uh, in particular and a lot of the uh, transatlantic flights come in uh, overnight and sort of they land into Dublin at 5, uh, 6 a.m., that type of uh, time frame. So um, there was unease within the aviation sector about that, but maybe they just thought, well, well, we'll roll on with this and it'll be sorted out in due course. But anyway, roll on to 2023. The runway has been built. It's open. Um, so the airport has uh, greater capacity now. There's been a number of complaints from residents uh, about nighttime flying that has exceeded the planning permission. Fingal looked into it and they've issued an enforcement proceeding against Dublin Airport essentially saying you're going to have to curb this and they were giving them six weeks to do that. So DAA has gone to court, it's gone to the High Court seeking a judicial review of this enforcement notice and it was granted that during the week um, by the by the High Court, by the judge. So some good news for anybody who's flying out in the next uh, number of months on their holidays uh, during the night or early in the morning because those uh, flights are now not under threat. The DAA had warned that approximately 300 nighttime flights could be disrupted and that would have impacted 45,000 passengers. Equally, they're also saying that on another interpretation of the enforcement notice, 4,000 flights over the coming weeks and months could have been disrupted, uh, impacting 700,000 passengers. So whatever way you slice it and dice it, a lot of people were potentially in the firing line here. And uh, Ryanair's Michael O'Leary was on the Pat Kenny uh, programme here on News Talk um, last week and he said this was all idiotic. He's kind of right, but at the same time, this planning permission condition was, in, was put in place in 2007 and it really shouldn't have taken 16 years for for people for people to sort of realise that uh, it, it actually is a legally binding condition. Yeah. Emily, it should have been sorted out before now. Emily, Michael O'Leary's argument and indeed Ryanair's argument on this is that it should be an evaluation of noise over the period of a year rather than an assessment of the number of flights. That's essentially his argument, isn't it, Kieran? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's all right for him, I guess. But like, the residents who are now having to deal with all this every day, you know, every year to wait for a year to see where this pans out. That's not really fair. Where do you think um, 
the balance could be struck? Hmm. I mean, that is the million dollar question. Obviously, I have immense sympathy with people who find that they're sleeping or, you know, other nighttime activities are disrupted. You know, I mean, people have pets that start barking furiously. They're, you know, like it is an issue. But at the same time, it's very, very, very difficult to say that you stop the business of an airport that you have invested so much money in that is the business of a country in order to make sure that people have uninterrupted nighttime sleep. I can't, like, I can't call where the balance is, but I think that the idea is not an unfair one, that you assess the level of noise over a year rather than, you know, kind of totting up the number of flights Mm. a night. I think that that probably is fair. Kieran, presumably Aer Lingus are affected by all this as well. They've been very quiet on it. Uh, have you heard anything? Yeah, they are, they are potentially impacted by it. I, I should just uh, clarify that the judge put a stay on the enforcement action by Fingal and it's going to be uh, a f- it's been returned to uh, a hearing in November. That so, was my next question. When is the next time? Yeah, this is going so to uh, between now and November, nothing's going to happen. But who knows after that? Um, so, yeah, Aer Lingus potentially is impacted because obviously the transatlantic flights, as I say, many of them come in early in the morning. Um, so that's a, a bit of an issue for them. They've they've kept their own counsel so far, um, but presumably they're keeping a very close eye on this. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, there's definitely a bit to run on this one yet. Look, just to move to a lighter story for a minute, uh, if we can, the Irish Independent uh, reporting, Emily, on the latest must-have vintage product. Guess what it is. It's a fairy liquid bottle. Never in our wildest dreams. Never in our wildest dreams. How many rocket ships did you make out of these? This is the old style, opaque white bottle with a red top and fairy liquid. Apparently they were made from 1950 until 2000 when they were phased out for the clear bottles, which are more easily recyclable. Uh, Now these vintage bottles, some in apparently mint condition, but also empty, which suggests how mint can they be if they have been emptied and used they're going for sale on eBay for apparently as much as €230, euro, inspired and driven by this kind of influencer lifestyle, lover of all things, kind of vintage and cutesy. I just like, I can't, no. I can't imagine what possibly goes through the head of somebody who spends €230 euro Kieran, or even half that. Kieran, do you qualify as vintage and cutesy? Do you remember <laughs> the Nanette Newman ads? I'm old enough to remember uh, those ads, <laughs> yes, uh, sadly. So I'm of that vintage. Um, but I think Andrew Schuster, who's a director of Vintage Furniture Company Retrospective Interiors, puts it well. He says, it just seems a bit random to me. It just seems like there's absolutely no <laughs> point to it and they're not that attractive. And I would kind of agree with him. The mind absolutely boggles, doesn't it? Well, listen, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to come in with us today. That was a fascinating look through the newspapers and I really do appreciate your time. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was author and journalist Emily Horrican and Kieran Hancock, business editor with The Irish Times. Thank you both very much. Thanks, Thank you. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.